Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, of course, with me, as always, is uh, founder of Dose Nation and author of Psychedelic Information Theory, James Kent. James, how are you today? I'm doing well, Jake. Thanks a lot. So uh, you have a few announcements uh, for housekeeping business for the uh, top of the show. Yeah, I just wanted to update people about the podcast. Um, most people have probably noticed that we're not streaming live on Sepia anymore. And that's mostly a technical issue. We were having some problems with our um, our broadcast not being able to connect to their server. And a couple weeks ago, they lost their station manager and things just got worse. So I have enough technical headaches to deal with in my day-to-day life. I didn't need to have that kind of uh, aggravation for the podcast. So for the time being, we're not streaming live, but we are recording. We are releasing podcasts once a week. Uh, hopefully once a week. Every once in a while, we may skip a week if we can't get a guest or if we're on vacation. So the best way to keep up with us is to subscribe in iTunes or to subscribe with our RSS feed in your favorite podcast reader, and you should be able to keep up with us that way. Um, coming, We may be uh, looking into getting a live streaming server up for ourselves sometime in the near future, but we haven't gotten all that together yet. No, but hopefully that will be coming uh, at some point. That's right. What, yeah. So. And over the summer, my schedule changes, so I don't have as much time to work on individual projects as I do during the rest of the year. And uh, probably, I'm guessing if we're going to go live and have a streaming server live, it'll be closer to the end of the summer than it is in the middle of the summer. And until then, you can just keep track of the podcast on the RSS feed or in iTunes, and uh, that, that's the best way to stay updated with us. Or visit our Facebook page at dosnation.com slash Facebook. Yes, that's And you can get daily. updates and announcements there. That's what's going uh, on. That's always updated daily, and you can uh, send us feedback through that for, through that um, medium as well. So, yeah, and we've been getting a little bit of feedback from there. Um, listeners um, wanting to hear us talk about uh, special topics and um, recent news items that are coming out. One of the things that I did want to announce is that I just wrote an article on two five i two five i and bohm and other recent research chemicals for high times, and that should be coming out in the October issue. Um, I've editor of High Times is a friend of mine. We met last year, and I've started writing for them. So I'm guessing that I'll probably be doing maybe three or four articles a year for them. So if you're not a High Times reader, but you're a fan of mine, um, you can, again, keep track of the Facebook page, and I will point uh, post pointers to those articles whenever they come out. And if there's an article that you want to see in High Times that you would like to see James Kent write, go ahead and send us a note on our Facebook page and I'll pitch an article to uh, to Chris Simonek, the uh, editor of High Times. And he and I have a pretty good relationship, so he's open to anything, really. So that's, that's one of the, the things that I've been doing recently is um, more writing, more journalistic writing for magazines. And I hope to be doing a little bit more of that later this year. Um, so instead of you know trying to tackle another book, I think sticking with articles at this point is probably easiest for me. <laughs> 
And I know, uh, Jake, you were thinking of writing a book. Yeah. Do you want me to talk a little bit? Uh, sure. Little sure. Talk that? a little bit about what your particular areas of interests are <laughs> and, and what, what kind of uh, topics you're looking to follow. Yeah, um, because I think that they're not um, paid attention to enough, and that when they are, that they're marginalized. But I think that um, uh, the Western spiritual tradition, and uh, when I say that, that, you know, that 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 includes, you know, all branches of Christianity, um, you know, Near East religions and things like that, um, plus alchemy and Gnostic yeah, traditions um, and Cathars and right, uh, things the lost, which, lost traditions right, in right. the West. The 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 uh, supp- well, not lost, but suppressed, I would say. But anyway. Um, the, the the lesser known traditions in the West and um you know, sort of sort of to bring those to light to people because one of the things and you know, and I've heard it on this podcast before, there is no valid spiritual tradition in the West or there is no kind of uh value to to Western uh, religion or Western culture, and I don't, and I don't think that that's a fair assessment or a fair evaluation of it. And uh, through right, I think the the modern view of mysticism tends to skew east towards like Tibetan Buddhism or uh, you know Hindu philosophy or some sort of mesh of New Age Hindu Zen Buddhist ideals. Whereas you know that's not the only mysticism game in town. There's obviously a very strong Western <clears throat> mystical tradition. Which, um, you know, my fascination with the Western mystical tradition is how it dovetailed into what we call science today. So, Yeah, um, I mean, and I, I think that that's something that people don't look at enough, and that I think that, that people discount. Um, and uh, th- that's, that's, a, that's a particular, particular area of, of uh, interest of mine. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, Western history and... Uh, you know things like that, but it's 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 mainly going to focus around Western spiritual tradition uh, if, and uh, how that how that is still relevant today. Because I think a lot of people have uh, also, I believe that, that that a lot of the ancient traditions that were set forth by you know many of the Desert Fathers, um, you know early monastics, uh, early ascetics, uh, has that 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 message has been lost, and I think that. Uh, that's well, something. not so much, not so much lost as it's, I think the Catholic Church, um, built this huge edifice of their belief system. And they kind of, they, like you said, marginalized everything that didn't fit into their, their pat ideology of what they wanted Christianity to be. So a lot of these mystic traditions, they, they've been, they've been pushed to the side in favor of this, this one dominant Catholic, Catholic ideology and uh, i know from conversations with you in the past you've gotten pretty mad at the catholic church for uh for you know denying their mystical past or not or you know uh not not focusing on that as much as say like birth control for instance right yeah yeah i mean I, because because i think that that's a because i'm 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 one of these people that that believes the change starts with the individual person that it starts with the um, with with a personal or you know revelation by the individual of uh, of understanding or of some kind of um, of intellectual revelation of the individual, but not you know, but you can't you can't change everyone else's opinions. You can only work with the one person. The change has to start with that person. Uh, well, right. It's not like it's not like the Pope or somebody can touch a magic wand to your head and say, you are now mystically enlightened. Right. It's something that you need to practice and find for yourself. So and it's, I, think the, I think the Catholic Church wants people to believe that the Pope can touch your head and then you're magically enlightened. But that's 
really not the way it, it works. Yeah, and and I and believe it or not, which is you know this is the other thing is that is that many many of the um, many of the uh, of the ascetic practices of of people like Evagrius Ponticus or Origen or uh, Macarius of Alexandria very similar to the ascetic practices of the East. Um, so there's even crossover and. But people don't like to look at it, and I don't know why. But that's 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 a that's a a uh, an intellectual uh, problem I haven't been able to wrap my head around. Why nobody? Yeah, wants I mean, to Christianity, uh, modern Christianity is really weird. I mean, it's well, like it's very uh, different. the Bible and Psalms and hymns and going to church. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Saying your prayers, and it's all very uh, rote almost. Um, it's well, like it's like you just go and you, you, you the, go you walk through the paces and it's a good stepping stone you know doing the whole singing and you know but it's it, it's a it, it's a good place to start but I think and that, what, I think what a, what many people who listen to the podcast probably don't know about you is that you are practicing you are a practicing Catholic you you pray you go to services you you do liturgies um, you're very interested in the whole ritual of the church. Uh, as opposed to say their dogma. I mean, that's really what you're what you're interested in is the ritual and how the ritual brings about changes within the individual. Yeah, because I mean, I've seen um, and, and I mean when I and when I talk about uh, Catholicism or Christianity, I mean, I mean again, and 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 maybe maybe this is a bad you know a, a bad way to put it, but I I when I talk about the church right when I when I when I talk about the, the this this body of of people who you know came up with this stuff like you know and who and and that these early ascetics were members of one of the things that I think is important to remember is that the church came first the 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 organization came first the 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 five C's came first and the councils came first and then the texts were formed and then these things were were uh were were written out but and i so the practice right that people were using before there was any text to even to even go on you know just just right, like just the, the liturgies chants, and, right the right practice the meditation right, right, practice exactly. the fasting the asceticism all the, of that existed long before long before the, the bible the existed right and long before the dogma existed and there was still a body of people called the church that 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 were together in community doing this uh, and I think that, um, you know, many people don't, don't realize that and don't see it that way. They see it as, well, you have to accept the belief system before you can do the ritual. Or you have to, you know, uh, accept everything before you can do the ritual. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I don't think that, 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 that anyone would argue that, that in order to, uh, utilize Merkaba that you need to be a Buddhist. You have to be a practicing Buddhist every day of your life to utilize that, right? Would you argue that? I don't know. But, no, no, right. I wouldn't. And, but, right. but, and it's 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 almost like I'm, you know, there are people who are anti-science and anti-evolution who use the internet every day and don't sense the the hypocrisy there in that. So you know, you don't have to believe in what you're doing for it to work for you. You know what I mean? You don't. Uh, belief is sometimes not part of the equation. You can you can perform the ritual and you can get a result without having to believe in anything. Um, and yeah. and I think when people talk about the church, or the Catholic Church in particular, uh, the first thing they jump to is, well, there's all of this weird mythology that they follow about the resurrection of Christ and the virgin birth and and this and that. And there's there's these, you know, the Catholic Church has got this sort of weird quasi sexual 
weirdness going on with you know child molestation and uh, the, this the revelation this week that there's a homosexual cabal inside of the the Vatican and uh, you know there's all of this there's, there's all of this creepy political weirdness going on in the Catholic Church that has nothing to do with the mystical tradition. And I and I think you know, and people <laughs> focus on that on on the creepy weirdness that it's kind of evolved into, and, and they don't realize that there is a real core there that has somehow been spackled over by all of the, you know, the robes and the jewelry and the and the orders of, you know, uh, having to be uh, having no sex for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, not only that. I mean, I mean, I mean, even looking past that, right? I mean, I, I mean, let's 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 just leave the Catholic Church out of the equation entirely, right? I mean, there are there are, there are Christian church, uh, churches which have, I mean, virtually no blood on their hands. Like, take the Coptic Church in Egypt, for example, right? If anything, their history is more a history of being persecuted rather than persecuting anybody. Um, and you know, again. Uh, there, there are many monasteries and there are many desert ascetics who live in Egypt today who still practice these, uh, the rituals and who still, um, are very aware of, of these types of meditations and teachings. Uh, like Father like, Lazarus? Like Father Lazarus L. Anthony, who's, uh, you can look him up on YouTube. Very interesting guy. Um, ha- haven't found anybody else like him, uh, since I found him on YouTube. I haven't found anybody else who really does what he does, or or, the, or who's talked about it, or who does talk about it. Yeah, and Father Lazarus is, um, what, he's Australian, and he was, he converted to Coptic Christianity, and he became a monk, and now he now lives he's in a anchorite. cave in the yeah. middle of the desert, well, he's, in complete isolation. He's a, he's an, he's an anchorite. Um, oh, he's an anchorite. Yeah, he, Sorry. part of, part of his story, if I remember correctly, and I'll just recite a little bit of it, uh, for the viewers, because I think it's interesting. Um, he was making, uh, he, and this is after he had gone and, you know, uh, gone through the process of, of, um, you know, going to different monasteries and exploring Christianity as a, as a, uh, as a belief system and so on. And now he was, you know, fully into it, and he was at the, you know, he was traveling with I, I I think it was Pope Shenouda who was the a Coptic pope at the time, and um, he he was in the cave of Saint Anthony, which is um, where Saint Anthony lived and fasted and uh, you know did his his asceticism for forty years, and he was making a prayer uh, in in front of the cave, and this is the part of the reason, or I, I, at least from what I've gathered from watching him part of the reason that he lives in the you know in on that mountain now is because as he was making this prayer he heard a voice come from the back of the cave there was nobody else in there with him of course it was just it was just him but he heard the voice come from the back of the cave and i think it said minoshiri or something like that and uh, he didn't know what it meant but when he had uh, gone down and spoke to uh, you know another priest who who's who spoke fluent Coptic, he said, you know, what does that mean? What does this mean? And he and you know, he gave him the meaning of it. And it was and and it was something to the effect of, you know, I want you to stay here. So he had this profound, you know, spiritual experience on the mountain and uh, you know, he he could have gone and lived in a very comfortable monastery in you know, near Cairo and have worked with Pope uh, Shenouda and, you know, had done all that. But instead he he chose to uh, you know, live in the side of a mountain now, does he live in the cave of Saint Anthony? Um, I don't. I don't believe or, anybody or did he find actually. His own cave? I, I think he, no. Yeah, I think he he has his own cave. I don't know if anybody <laughs> actually lives in the cave of Saint Anthony because I, there's 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 an altar in there, 
and uh, a few other things uh, from, from yeah, what and, I've and seen. you know, for for people who think they know about the the, the the Christian tradition or the Catholic West, finding out that there are guys like this out there is mind that there is there is such a thing like the cave of saint anthony it's it's really it's it's really such a rich interest interesting monastic tradition that doesn't really get any of the play i mean really all you hear about is you know child molestation scandals or the churches you know putting women down or whatever i mean it's it's all it's all political and none of it has to do with with the, with the religion tradition. yeah i know no but 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 see the the the, the monasticism and the uh, you know you know and father lazarus being an anchorite and i mean you know the, the uh you know uh, or the work they do at mount athos with the icons and you know the restoration of the icons and things like that and the restoration of the of the older monasteries there i mean all of this stuff that has to do with the actual you know religion itself with the daily practice of it with the uh spiritual mystic uh living part of it um, as opposed to this, to this battle where you have, you know, the archbishop, the political, the right, political control, right, where you have the archbishop of so and so arguing with this politician because one believes, in, you know, that uh, condom should be handed out at this place and the other one doesn't. I mean, it's, it's, it, t- to me, it's, it's, it's a little. I mean, it's like a, we're we're entirely missing the point, you know? Right, and that's kind of <laughs> that's what happens when religions, institutionalized religions, get into politics. It's it becomes it becomes a, p- a political shell game as opposed to a path to enlightenment. But that's also not to say that I that, that I'm a big fan of, of 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 new age and you know all that kind of stuff either. Though, um, you know, I- no, I find a lot of new age really um, trying on my patience um, because a lot of it is sort of cherry picked from different religions and. Um, I don't know how you how you form a, a basis around you know it's sort of like pseudo pagan Wicca Buddhist animism. It, it's really hard to pin down what New Age is. Everybody has a slightly different opinion, but it usually has to do with something spiritual. You know, I'm really spiritual. I'm into spiritual things, even though that's really not very well defined. Um, yeah, matters but, but, other than those of the flesh, I guess. But that, but, but, but this is the question that I that ask. Well you're, well, you're into spiritual things. Well, what what spiritual path do you do, do you follow, or who do you who do you look to for guidance, or who do, you know? Right. <clears throat> it's, it's it's hard to find somebody who's not full of shit these days. I mean, to, well, to be I mean, honest, I mean, when you say who do you look for for guidance, even people who are earnest seekers, it's really hard to go out and find somebody to study with who's not like some guru who's going to try to manipulate your mind and take advantage of you or you know feed you some more bs dogma that that's not going to lead you anywhere well that's why um, i say go go back and read the ancients first and then go to the presence you know to to to, to the present supposed masters read, right. and, read and in in your studies you're actually in your in your pursuit of studying this topic you've actually visited a couple monasteries and met with a variety of different monks trying to uh you know see what their spiritual path is um how how many places have you been to so far um i've been i've i've uh, visited two i plan on visiting a few more and 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 of course i plan on visiting a couple of uh, other denominationals the one uh, the ones that i visited have been benedictine but there's also cistercian Monasteries I wouldn't mind visiting, and uh, Orthodox. The Benedictine monasteries. monasteries are a little bit more accessible. Uh, yeah. So, now, th- th- this is what I'll say. So, so, so within within Catholicism, you have you have met a lot of different orders. But uh, you know, the, the the three that people are probably most familiar with are the Benedictines, the Cistercians, and the Cartusians. Um, the Benedictines, I think, are, are probably the, the largest order. 
um, of cloistered monks that that are that are around today, and then you have the Cistercians, the Trappists, and uh, the, and the Cartusians. They only have a couple of charter houses throughout the world. I think they only have about four or five. It's very small, and they're they're the most cloistered. They don't speak, um, you know, har- they, they 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 hardly speak to each other at all. Uh, I think they go out for for one walk every week in which they talk to each other. So there, so there are degrees within that. But but out of but out of all of them, what I found is that the Benedictines and the Cistercians are the are the easiest to 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 get in touch with. Um, and then of course you have the Orthodox monasteries: Romanian Orthodox, Byzantine Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodox, uh, Greek Orthodox, and so on and so forth. So, and and what I find fascinating is is you went to a monastery and um, you meet people there who are very genuine mystic seekers and then you meet people who are there because they don't really have any other place in life to be yeah you meet meet people who are kind of faking it they're just they're just there because they're not sure why they're there and then you meet people who are like oh don't go talk to that guy because uh (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's he's he was he was sent here to uh to hide because uh he got into some problems with you know some sort of sexual scandal years ago so you get you you find a wide mix of people at these places yeah you know and it's and it's interesting because because there really is no one one breed but what i will say is that among all monks or among most monks that i've met there is there is a thread of you know of of this striving to be um as good of a person internally as you can be <clears throat> and to have and to have a balance in your life and 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 that's and that's really what it comes down to and you can read the rule of saint benedict and the rule of the master and the rule of saint augustine and all these other different um books that'll give you a better idea of 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 how they live but i mean i mean it yeah, one so if people have been have been curious as to why there's a lot of you know uh <sighs> religious philosophy on our Facebook page or why we talk to people like Tim Wallace Murphy or Father Nicholas Buxton. It's really because this is Jake's area of study and we want to talk to people who are experts in this area who are not just, um, you know, feeding us a line of uh, religious dogma, but who are really scholars and have really, you know, done the legwork and been around the world and, and, and seen people practicing. Yeah, and, and if you haven't listened to our interviews with um, Tim Wallace Murphy and um, uh, Father Nicholas Buxton, I would definitely suggest you go back and do that um, because those were those are very interesting. <clears throat> and uh, Father Nicholas Buxton, I think, is coming out with another book next year. And uh, Tim Wallace Murphy just uh, came out with uh, a book on the Palestinian conflict, uh, Genesis of a Tragedy. So definitely, and 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 he has a, he has a whole host of books on Amazon that you can pick up. I mean, uh, he has a bibliography going, you know, go- going back, you know, twenty, thirty, forty years. So, um, th- there's a lot of great, of great stuff that you can find there and resources that you can read. So, yeah. So I think that's that's enough on that. I just wanted to, uh, to catch people up to speed on that because, you know, uh, I, I'm definitely interested in mysticism. You probably know a little bit more about Western spiritual tradition than I do. So it's a little bit of a mix of mysticism and science and psychedelics <laughs> and and weirdness and uh, underground yeah, but culture. The other thing is that I would say that uh, you know, uh, to, and I'll and I'll quote uh, bro- uh, a, a video with uh, Brother David Steindl Rast in it, who's a fan- fantastic inter- um, He's he he does he does a lot of interfaith dialogue uh, 
and uh, he's, you, you can find his books on Amazon. Uh, one, the the interview the interviewer asked asked him a question. You know, psychotropic uh, substances. What are your thoughts? Uh, is is it a bona fide experience? You know, is it is it a bona fide spiritual experience, or is it uh, or does it hinder it? And uh, you know, brother David Steiner said, "Well, I think it's a bona fide uh, experience," and I would agree with him. So. There's right, and also it depends on the context. Well, I mean, well, you can right, take, right, of course. Take psychedelics course. in church on Easter Sunday, and of course it's it's, it's going to be a, it's a spiritual experience. <laughs> right, but if you you know take them at uh, I don't know the uh, 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 Hell's Angels biker rally. <laughs> right, it might be a little bit of a different. Well, that's you, more of a decadent hedonist <laughs> experience. Yeah, you know, it just depends on <laughs> where you want to be when you're when you're taking, and uh, you know. <laughs> that's why yeah, and you know whatever floats your boat is what i say that's why we're dose nation so <laughs> right now one of the requests that we had from a listener is that he wanted us to talk a little bit more about consciousness and the science of consciousness in general and that's a pretty big topic so um i wanted to come at it from a couple different ways uh, the first way is to talk about when when i talk about consciousness i have a very um what you what most people would call a reductionist uh, monist view i'm a very i'm very much a physicalist i believe that consciousness is a physical it's a physical energy system and you need to in, the, in order to understand it you need to understand the way that energy moves through the physical system and when i try to break down consciousness in the way that psychedelics affect consciousness and the way that mystical practice affects consciousness, people um, who are spiritual or, or more in the new age view of things and don't know too much about neuroscience, one of, one of the uh, metaphors I hear over and over and over again, even from people who speak at publicly, like at TED conferences, is this notion that consciousness is like a radio signal that we receive. And that if you view consciousness as a radio signal that we receive, then we can receive the consciousness of the universe, and we can receive the consciousness of other people, and you get non-local consciousness, and you get all of these sort of new age concepts of consciousness as a field in the universe, like an invisible field. And... I just have to categorically reject that because that's that's not the way that consciousness works. I mean, I just have to flat out say that's a bad metaphor. It's wrong in every way. And people who come to me with that metaphor have obviously not studied the brain at all because that's that's not the way the brain works. The brain is very heavily shielded from any kind of outside radiation so that it can it can remain stable inside of its skull, and it it doesn't it doesn't like it doesn't like being affected by outside radiation. In fact, it will, it will, uh, the brain will retune itself to keep from being affected from, from outside radiation or sources that are trying to, to, um, manipulate it. So the reason that, that, that the radio metaphor is not very good are like the television broadcast. Consciousness is like a television broadcast that the brain receives. And if you just change the channel, you receive a new kind of consciousness. Well, that's, that's not a, that's not a very valid metaphor because, you know, and even Tim, Tim Leary used this metaphor. A lot of psychedelic philosophers use this metaphor. Um, even people who should know better use this metaphor because it sounds cool. But the reason why it's not correct 
is, first of all, the brain does not receive transmissions like that. The brain only receives signals through the sense organs, the eyes, the ears, the skin, the tongue. And those, that's just a very, very, very fine trickle of information that is then recreated in the brain to this, this picture of reality that we have. The second reason why it's wrong is that a TV, when you turn off the TV, it doesn't start creating its own channel. Whereas with consciousness, when we go to sleep and turn off the brain, we start programming our own channel in our sleep, right? Consciousness actually creates information. It doesn't receive information. It creates information. Consciousness is an information-creating machine. It doesn't receive information. I mean, it receives data, it receives sense data, but it turns that data into information that we use to process our thoughts. Now, that's the reason why it's not a radio. A radio receives information and puts it through a speaker. Consciousness receives trickles of data and creates information from those trickles of data. So there is no one single channel of consciousness, and you can't change your consciousness channel and see another channel of consciousness. Those are all just just really bad metaphors. And the reason that consciousness is so unique is that we can imprint our own views onto reality. We can see something that is that is clearly blue and be convinced that it's green if enough people standing around us are telling us, no, 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 that's green. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so, so consciousness can be manipulated very easily by our preconceptions and by the information that we're receiving from other people who are trying to validate what we're seeing. So um, consciousness is not absolute. It's not really, uh, it's not a really verifiable form of information. In fact, consciousness can be fooled really, really easily. We fool ourselves all the time, every day, with, with things that we tell ourselves. Um, so the fact that consciousness can be fooled and the fact that consciousness is not as robust as we, we think it is means that humans are prone to make a lot of errors in judgment. And that has been the case for most of history. And yes, the only I would reason agree. <laughs> the only reason we found our way out of that is with science and, and, a, and a method of, of being able to produce information that we can agree is reliable because it works every single time we, we put it into practice. And, that, and that, that, uh, that method of trial and error and finding the things that work and then creating formal models of how those things work, that's the scientific method. And that's, that's basically how we double-check our consciousness to make sure that our consciousness isn't making errors. Without science, we walk around with errors all the time. You know, we can walk around believing that the voices in our head are coming from angels. Whereas now we understand that they're coming from Broca's area, which is the lobe um, right at the, the back of the frontal lobe and towards the, the front of the temporal lobe, where language is synthesized in the brain. And if you take a little electrode and you stick it into Broca's area and it, and you know, you, you know, give it a little frequency burst, then you start to hear words and sounds in your head. And it's, it's really just as simple as that. Your brain acts like a muscle. And when little fibers in your brain twitch, the brain interprets those as sense data and that bubbles up into what we call our consciousness which really comes together in our in our prefrontal cortex and you can test all of this 
because neuro, neuroscience has has does these things called lesion studies where they'll they'll take animals and they'll 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 look at the circuitry of the brain and they'll say what happens if we make a break in this circuit and what happens if we make a break in this circuit and what happens if we make a break in this circuit and they say ah oh, well if we cut this circuit going to the parietal lobe the animal loses motor control therefore this is the circuit that controls motor behavior if we cut this circuit, the animal goes blind. Therefore, this circuit is the one that controls vision. If we cut this circuit, the animal can't hear. Therefore, this circuit c- controls hearing. But it becomes even more precise than that because there are areas of the brain for every single thing we do. I mean, there's an area of the brain for, you know, if you want to make the Vulcan salute, live long and prosper, there's an area of your brain programming for, for making your hand do that. And if you make a little lesion in the circuit, you can't do that anymore. You can't make that signal with your hand. So consciousness and, and, and behavior and thought, and, and, and even things like putting words, like even things like looking at a picture of a cat and being able to think the word cat in your head, there is a circuit in your brain for that. And if you cut that circuit, you can look at a picture of a cat and you can know it's a cat, but you can't for the life of you come up with the word cat. Now, do you see, you see how complex that is? To, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so... So the brain is really, I mean, consciousness is really a circuit, but it's not just one circuit. It's many, many thousands of circuits, maybe hundreds of thousands of circuits running in parallel so that we can do all of the things that we do at once. And if you, if you break or make a lesion in any one of these circuits, then the ability that, or the, the function of consciousness that that circuit regulates disappears. And the really interesting thing is that all of these circuits in the brain run through the thalamus and the spinal cord, and all of the circuits in the thalamus run through this tiny, 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 tiny little spot that's about the size of a pea or smaller, called the intralaminar nucleus, or the thalamus, yeah, I think it's the intralaminar nucleus inside the thalamus. And if you make a lesion in that tiny, 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 tiny little pea-sized organ inside the layers of the thalamus, the person goes comatose. They lose all behavior. They lose all input. They lose all behavior, and they go into a coma. So there is one tiny spot in your brain where all of the circuits pass through, and that is kind of the the locus of consciousness as far as people can tell. Not that all consciousness happens there, but that is the, the circuit breaker in the brain. It's this intralaminar nuclei inside the thalamus. So we I have, have hold a circuit on. So, breaker so, of consciousness. So wait, can I just ask a question to, to clarify sure. to make sure that I know what, what, that I have everything got, you know, coming together mm-hmm. correctly? So really everything comes down to there is a physical, pe- you know, there is a physical part of the brain that if you touch it, the brain reacts in a certain way. So everything comes down to, well, there's a physical part of the brain that does everything that we basically experience. Right. So if you, if you want to, if, if you can, you can locate the part of the brain that where, when you smell a rose and you get that scent of a rose, an area of your brain lights up. Now, if you, if you take a probe and put it in the brain right in that area and you shock it with a little, a little electric shock, you smell roses. Even though there's no roses there. Your brain makes you smell roses because the part of your brain that recognizes rose smell has been stimulated. And the second part of this is that if you cut that circuit anywhere along the line, not just the part that smells roses, but parts leading up into the smart 
part that smells roses and parts leading away from the part that smells roses, if you make a little lesion just in that one area, that one circuit, your consciousness will be completely unaffected, but every time you go to smell a rose, it will smell like nothing. So, (laughs) it really is, it really is a physical circuit, and when energy runs through that circuit, we feel something. Now, now many people would disagree with you, especially... No, well, well, you can't disagree with me, because this is proven. This has all been proven in scientific research. James, I didn't say I disagree with you. I said said many people would disagree with you. Well, but but see, it it would be irrelevant to disagree with me, because this stuff is, is factual. I mean, and it is, and when you think about it, it's, it's only logical. I mean, if you have a circuit that controls your finger moving up and down and you break that circuit and you can't move your finger up and down anymore, what's the difference between the qualia of, say, the scent of a rose and the behavior of moving your finger? Well, to people who study philosophy of consciousness, they'll say what, there's all the difference in the world because qualia, like the scent of a rose, is one of these ambiguous things that, 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 that don't exist outside of the brain. Whereas movement obviously exists outside of the brain, so that's a, that's a more physical thing. What I'm saying is no. The movement of your finger and the scent of the rose are exactly the same thing. It's just like the twitch of a muscle. If you make that muscle twitch, the finger moves. If you make the mus- if you make that muscle inside your skull twitch, you smell a rose. Do you know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? The scent of the rose, the, every, every thought, every behavior, every sense is controlled by some circuit in the brain. And some circuits handle multiple functions, and some circuits are very, very specific to one function. So, um, there's, there's, there's so much to the brain that, um, we thought was mysterious to begin with that is now, uh, really, really sort of crude and mechanistic. To the point where if you have a problem, you say, oh, I can't see out of my left eye. And you go to the neurosurgeon and the neurosurgeon says, oh, well, yeah, you have a tumor along your optic nerve or in your visual cortex. You take out the tumor, the tissue heals, and you can see again. Now, there's nothing spiritual or mysterious going on there. It was just your circuit was blocked because there was pressure created by this tumor. Um, the same thing happens when people get, get traumatic head injuries. They lose some ability. They lose some functions. You know, some people have amnesia, right? They get hit in the head. It's the old classic, you know, comedy <laughs> trope. Somebody gets hit in the head and they get amnesia and they can't remember anything. And a few weeks later, the damage heals and suddenly they can remember again. And that's because one little wire in the circuit that controls your memory got dislodged somehow. And because that circuit was broken, all of the memories that connect through that wire are suddenly offline. But when that wire heals itself, those memories start coming back. And people like to say, oh, memory is non-physical, or memory is holographic, or memory is this or this or that. But no, it's really memory is a piece of data that's stored in a circuit somewhere, accessed through a wire called a neuron. And uh, so, so consciousness and the science of consciousness... People would say, well, I'm not talking about consciousness, I'm talking about perception and behavior. But I don't really make the distinction. Um, there's, there's some people in the philosophy of consciousness school that say that consciousness with a big C is like this field I was talking about earlier. There's this field of consciousness that informs the, uh, the formation of life and matter. 
and consciousness must exist before organisms exist. Otherwise, matter would never spontaneously organize. Well, that's a little bit of a circular argument. Uh, my take on it is you cannot have consciousness until you have a perceptual system elaborate enough to process that consciousness. So the perceptual system comes first, the consciousness comes second. The perceptual system can be as simple as a single-celled organism, like a protozoa, and or you know an amoeba or a bacteria. And even single-celled organisms, the smallest organism, they can all inherently, just because of the makeup of their cells and the way and the stuff that their cells are made out of, every organism is born into the world understanding the difference between light and dark, understanding the difference between gravity and no gravity, and understanding the difference between silence and loud vibrations in the area. Every organism is born with those senses. Now, consciousness builds upon those three things, the light perception, the sense of up and down created by gravity, and the sense of vibration in, in, in the environment to create what we consider to be consciousness today. Our consciousness has become robust about detecting light. That's where we get vision from. It's become robust about detecting sound. That's where our hearing comes from, vibrations in the environment. It has become very robust about detecting gravitational impulses. We are, in the water, it's not as, it's not as big of a deal. You know, gravity is not affecting us as much when we're water organisms. But since we've been land organisms, we have craved going up and up and up, higher and higher and higher. Um, you know, since time immemorial, I mean, that's part of the human urge, and I think the urge of, of many mammals, is to find high ground. We just have a, an innate desire to go higher. And that has to do with our innate sense of up and down created by gravity. If we were born in a zero-G environment, we wouldn't care about going up and down. Because we could do it all the time. Well, we, there would be no up and down. Everything there would, would be... just be There would just be circles. It would just be this direction, that direction, or going in circles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there would be no up and down. But because we're born on a planet in a gravitational field, our, organis our organism makeup understands gravity. And in fact, the, the gravitational field is one of the things that allows organisms to thrive on our planet. Organisms have a harder time thriving in, 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 in zero G because they don't have, they can't get purchase on anything. You know, if we're all sitting around on the ground, it's easy for us to gather in tribes and groups. If we're floating around in space, it's, it's very hard to organize. <laughs> so, so a lot of the things that we that we we think are mysterious about consciousness are actually purely factors of our environment. And we were having this discussion earlier about our sensation of color. Why do we see in the color spectrum that we see in? Well, it has to do with the white light coming from our sun, but there's a better reason for it than that. And that the frequency of light that we see in is at the right wavelength, a few millimeters. I mean, a tiny, a few micrometers to a few millimeters, the wavelength of light that we see allows us to see fine detail in textures. And if we saw light in a slightly lower field of frequency, we would see more amorphous blob type stuff. Like if you look at the, like the infrared glasses or the predator vision that you see in the predator movies, infrared vision is not better than the vision that we have because it's 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 lower bandwidth. It's a lower frequency, so you can't resolve fine detail. 
And if we were saw in a higher frequency bandwidth, like x-rays, we would see right through soft tissue. We wouldn't be able to make out the details of soft tissue because our x the x-rays would just pass right through that. So the fact that we see in the frequency range of light that we see in allows us to make out all of the fine details in the macroscopic world that we live in, like the texture of a carpet or the hairs on our on our skin or the freckles on our skin. And I like to explain it this way. Uh, the, the detectors that we have in our eyes for frequency of light are like combs. And if you have a comb where the teeth are a centimeter apart and you're digging through the sand with that comb, you cannot pick up pieces of sand smaller than a centimeter in diameter because they'll just pass right through the comb. The only thing that comb can pick up is pieces bigger than a centimeter. So if you have a receptor in your eye that can only pick up a certain frequency of light, frequencies of light smaller than that will just pass right through. They'll just slip right through. And frequencies of light that are too big, they'll just bounce right off. But if, the re- if, they, if they're the right size for hitting the receptor, then you get a stimulus. And the frequency of colors that we see in happen to be really good for examining fine detail in a, in a, in a macroscopic world. And I think it's, 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 it seems somewhat amazing how, how lucky we are that we've evolved with light, you know, light vision in the exact right frequency range that we need to see to, you know, make out the detail in, um, you know, uh, somebody's skin, skin tone or textures or like the fine detail for printed words and stuff like that. But really it's, it's a factor of, of the environment that we grew up in. We needed to look at, we needed to be able to find insects in the dirt and we needed to be able to find, d- distinguish, you know, this type of fruit from that type of fruit or this type of leaf from that type of leaf. So the fact that we see in this frequency range is really most beneficial for our survival. It's not an accident. It's, it's a, it's really a product of evolutionary biology, which is, which is when you come down to it, what most of our consciousness is. It's a, it's a product of evolutionary biology. And I say most of it because there is a large section of our consciousness, which is purely programmed by culture. And that's like the, the, our identity structures and our, our belief systems. Those are purely programmed by culture. Those, we aren't born with those. So there's, there's a, there's a section of consciousness that we're born with. Our senses are, you know, the, the circuits in our brain, the ability for us to function and, and perform behaviors and make thoughts and form ideas. But, but the, the, uh, the information that we then use to build our belief systems and, and inform our consciousness, those are purely culturally based. So consciousness, the way people, the way people think about things, changes from culture to culture. That's why, that's why everybody's consciousness is slightly different. We're not, we're, we're all born with pretty much the same consciousness, but the way that, that the information is informed over a lifetime affects the way that we think about things, the paradigms that we use to think about things, and, you know, the affinity that we place on things. Um, some cultures, uh, you know, really like milk. Other cultures hate it. Actually, this so. <laughs> this was an argument that I that, that I that I recently had with a with a with a few friends of mine. My <clears throat> excuse me, I argued that that to to one degree or another, right? <clears throat> every 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 human on the face of the planet has has the ability to be bisexual, right? Because if you look at 
the ancient world, right? I mean, it was so prevalent, it wasn't even funny. I mean, it, I mean, it, but it was also completely accepted. It was something that wasn't even talked about. It wasn't even an issue. It was just a non-issue. Mm-hmm. But now look at American society today, right? Where it's a major issue. A lot of people are talking about it. There's a lot of stigma attached to it. There's a lot of, um, you, you know, I mean, hell, it could make or break somebody's life, depending on what kind of, you know... What kind of career they right, have. Right, right, what kind of career they have, what part of the country they live in. So, yeah, and I, I take that back to the pure, the puritanical uh, foundations of, of America. I mean, America, uh, for all of the good that America is and represents, our puritanical roots really have, have they've, hamstr- they've hamstringed us in a lot of ways in our progress because you've got, you've got this, this faction of the religious right still that believes that all of these taboos are more important than, say, economic prosperity. You know, they're more concerned about abortion and birth control and making sure that, that young girls aren't having promiscuous sex than they are about whether or not people have health care or jobs. Uh, it, and it's, it's, really, it's really sad. And that goes back to the puritanical roots. Like you said, bisexuality um, or, or having sex for somebody, having sex with somebody for fun as opposed to procreation, like you said, for most of history has not been an issue. People could have sex with, uh, you know, and and can get off with anybody that they want to, and it's not necessarily a taboo. But you come in and you say, no, 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 you're not allowed to pleasure yourself unless it's for procreation. Then it becomes this big political issue. Right. It's not. It's it's no longer just something that happened. It's now something that is. Yeah. It's no longer something that we just do for fun. It's a political issue that we need to feel bad about. Right. This is this is an issue that we can politically debate and feel bad about. Yeah. Right. And, 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 uh, like, like to bring it back to what I was saying earlier, those kinds of preconceptions that are enforced on you by culture can affect your consciousness in really detrimental ways. Yes. And, and the, in the, and the most detrimental way is it closes off your consciousness to new ideas. You know, and, and there's this thing in the, in the psychedelic community that says, oh, psychedelics, you know, open your mind to new possibilities. And really what they're saying by that is psychedelics basically go into the part of your brain that's been informed by this, these cultural stereotypes and just smashes it to bits. <laughs> it just, it, it goes into the forebrain and it, and it just, it just basically worms its way through these, these cultural, these, these structures where cultural archetypes are most prevalent and it just tears them apart and it makes the people say, Oh my God, all of these things that I've been believing are basically built on hot air. Right. There, wrong, there is no whatever. real basis for this dogma that I've been told by my religion or my culture or my political or my political party or my nation. Things like, you know, money. You look at a you look at a twenty dollar bill when you're high on acid and you can you can't help but laugh at at all of the value people put on this piece of paper with an old dead white guy on it. I mean well. money is an illusion. Money, all currency, is an illusion created by the state. But people don't see it as an illusion. They see it as something to strive for, something to spend their lives, they, their lives revolve around getting more of it. But if you smash through those cultural archetypes and you get back to a more root form of consciousness, you realize this piece of paper is worthless. Right, In reality, this, has- this piece of paper has no value. 
the only value you can't that we eat have it. You is... could wipe your ass with it, but <laughs> see what else you could do. <laughs> right, right. Realistically, this has no, no, no other value than that which we assign to it. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I say when I mean consciousness can be manipulated by culture. And that has nothing to do with, with the physical properties of consciousness. That has to do with how you inform those physical properties with, with data. And the science of how consciousness operates from a neuroscientific level, a physical level, is fairly well established. Um, you can get a lot of debate in, in philosophical circles about what consciousness is, but when you go into neuroscientific circles... It's very, very cut and dried. I mean, it, literally, you can cut here and consciousness changes in this way. You can cut here and consciousness changes that way. And it's like a little, it's like a little schematic that people have put together. This other thing about the cultural elements of consciousness is still very mysterious. It's still extremely mysterious how culture influences our ideas and how those ideas inform our thoughts and how those thoughts inform our behaviors. It's a very, very sticky conglomeration of things going on in the brain that's that's really hard to tap into. But people do things like hypnosis and neuro-linguistic programming and indoctrination, and there's all these techniques for breaking down a person's belief system and encoding a new belief system on top of it. The technology for doing that is fairly well understood. But what's happening in the brain when all of that is going on is still a little bit of a mystery. You know, new connections are made and new wires are being formed, and then somebody's personality changes, and they're a new person. Like if they get inducted into a cult, happy-go-lucky young Jake Kettle, you know, monastic, you know, monastic scholar, uh, host of Dose Station, gets caught up in a cult. Uh, he's brainwashed, and he comes back two months later, and he's now Brother Demetrius. No, 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 and no, no. He's, he's a very sober and stern and... and <laughs> You know, he's been changed and he won't talk to his family anymore and he won't talk to his old friends because they're non-believers. You know, that happens to people. No, no, well, this is how it would go more if it was a, you know, <laughs> a, I mean, it would be James Kent would be the leader of like a commune that you set up. So, you know, James Kent, author of Psychedelic Information Theory, he would set up uh, some kind of commune out out in uh, Washington and then we would, you know, he would have, it, it would be like Osho, like he would collect Rolls Royces and have like, you know, people donate money to him. And then he would administer them like you know uh, certain doses, and then he would he would be like, "All right, now now we're going to uh, program your mind." And then right, he, you, you know, know and since you course, are a programmer, we're programming. When your mind. I was a younger man, I thought that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted, <laughs> to become, well, I mean, I wanted to become a, a head tweaker. Is really what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a mind manipulator, and not just for my own purpose. I wanted to go into the. I wanted to go into the military. I wanted to go into military intelligence and become one of these psyops guys that, you know, you know, gets people in the field to turn on their, um, you know, terrorist organizations or whatever. Um, but you know, uh, as I was going into the military and trying to figure out how to get into military intelligence, I realized that I was pretty much smarter than anybody in military intelligence, and that it was the wrong place for me. And if I hadn't had that realization early enough, you know, I would probably be, you know, this Sergeant Major James Kent now, as opposed to, 
you know, James Kent, author of Psychedelic Information Theory. But when I realized that the military didn't really have any use for me, didn't really, didn't really understand what I wanted to do and, and what my, what my, my, uh, my core reason for wanting to work with them was, I, you know, went out and looked for something else to do, which was figure out how psychedelics work, because that was the other, the other issue that I was interested. I was interested in mind control and I was interested in psychedelics because they, they go hand in hand, really. And there's a lot of information out there about how psychedelics have been used by the government in mind control experiments. And, you know, I wanted to be the MK Ultra guy. I wanted to be the guy running that program. And, uh, you know, it never worked out. Me and the military don't see eye to eye on most things. So, uh, it's, it's fortunate for me that I didn't get into that field, but it's, it's still something that I'm very fascinated with. And so, consciousness studies, religious studies, psychedelics, mysticism, brainwashing, programming consciousness, you know, I'm a programmer. I program computers. I work with logic systems. I work with technology. I work with networks. I don't see any difference between a digital computer and the brain. They can both be programmed. The, the brain is a little bit more resistant to programming, but once you soften it up and get it in the right state, it can be programmed just as easily as a computer. And, uh, and that's what I'm talking about, about laying these cultural paradigms over consciousness to change the personality of the individual. And those, those systems are most fascinating to me. And those, those are really my field of study. And mon monasticism, uh, is the opposite end of that spectrum. It's going into a place where you can isolate yourself from the cultural programming and just get rid of all that garbage and get down to the core of what it is to be, to be, to exist. You know, what does it mean to exist? And I think, most of modern civilization is distracting people from trying to figure out the answer to that question. You know, buy more stuff, consume more stuff, see more movies, watch more TV shows, work harder, make more money, but never question why we're here. <laughs> That's bad. Because then you might realize that it's all a, it's all a game bad, that we're dirty, running you bad. through. <laughs> bad, dirty, evil. <laughs> Right. And it's not like, it's not like it's a conspiracy. It's just, that's just the way the culture evolved and people run through the, run through the rat race their whole lives, not realizing that it is kind of a game. And when you take psychedelics or if you put yourself in a monastery for a few, few months, you realize, ah, yes, there is a lot of gaming going on out there. You can see through the BS because while you're in it every day running through the maze, it's, it's hard to remember that you're in a maze. Right. Just like a lab rat. Yeah. So Dose Nation is all about, you know, finding the people who have either transcended the maze and seen culture from this new perspective or have, you know, found some sort of artistic way to uh, shine a new light on this maze that we're all in. And uh, that's what I find most cool is people who can transcend that notion of, you know, we're locked into culture and go into like, are you serious? You know, he said, I'm going to start this psychedelic revolution myself. <laughs> yeah. Me, it's up one to me person. to start the psychedelic revolution. So I'm going to publish these magazines, High Frontiers, uh, uh, Mondo 2000, et cetera, et cetera. And I love people like that. I love people like that who say, I'm sick of the game. I'm going to start my own game. And, uh, 
Yeah, so Dose Nation is 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 celebrating those people who can who can transcend their cultural uh programming and uh use their consciousness to make their existence, you know, more fun while they're here as opposed to um you know, just being stuck in the rat race like like everybody else. I agree. So, we didn't have a guest this week. We just decided to do some housekeeping and uh, talk a little bit about consciousness and spirituality and monasticism and uh, let you all know that we're not broadcasting live anymore, but we will be back every week. And we're going to try to keep putting the show out on Wednesday, but if it doesn't come out on Wednesday, don't worry, it will come out eventually. (laughs) It'll come out soon enough. Right. Like I said, my summer schedule is really hit or miss, so for me to... uh, to uh, get get the podcast up every week, uh, you know, it may be late a couple weeks, but that's that's you know just because I'm on vacation somewhere. That sounds nice. Yeah, I mean that's what summer's for, man. I got to take a break and uh, get off the computer for a little bit, otherwise I'll go crazy. Yeah, join. The you know, in Seattle yeah. when the sun's out, I might as well go and enjoy the sun because for eight months out of the year, it's just you know socked in here. Right. Yeah. No. I. I. I agree. Uh, you know, one of the one of the greatest revelations I ever had. It was a truly spiritual revelation. Is when I realized that there was something called life outside of the computer, <laughs> life outside of the internet. And I discovered this 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 wonderful thing. And yeah. Well, and it's weird <laughs> that we're so connected to the internet now, whereas yeah, it's it's right. only been around for twenty years, and it's it's our entire life revolves around it. And I like how people say, oh, we live in such an interconnected world. But no, 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 no. People on Facebook are not connected. They're sitting on their com- in their computers in separate rooms all over the world. They're not, like, hanging out in the same room, partying and Getting hugging and, and kissing and connecting the way that humans are supposed to connect. Yeah. They're not. They're not connecting in that on that deeper, yeah, on that deeper. They're level. not engaging in in bisexual <laughs> spiritual orgies. <laughs> <laughs> they're posting pictures of their cats. Yes. <laughs> bisexual spiritual orgies. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with that. No, there's not. Anyway. Uh, yeah, moving on from there. We'll strike that one for the record. Um, well, thanks for joining us, everybody. <laughs> it's, uh, been a, it's been a pleasure. I'm your host, Jake. And I'm James Kent. Yes. Uh, and we will see you all next time at, uh, well, we don't have a time anymore, so we'll just see you all next time. Uh, <laughs> thanks for well, listening, everybody. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I, I'll say this is my final comment. I, I did live shows for a long time, so... You know, when I sign off, I'm, I'm always used to saying, hey, we'll see you all next week at, uh, you know, 9 o'clock or 5 o'clock or 7 o'clock. And, and, you know, now I just have no, I have no... Uh, well, if we can find a new home for the show on a, on a live station yeah. or set up our own live station, then, then we'll be back to that format. But it's not going to happen right away. It'll, no, it'll no, happen no. eventually. Well, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you all soon. Stay safe.